So we are in the midst of a short series this summer called Peter the Friend of Jesus, and the title of this message is that Peter witnessed the transfiguration of the glorified Jesus. And our theme, if you, are, you want to know what that is before you check out and fall asleep, the theme is listen to Jesus. So obviously now you have to listen to this sermon. Um, Peter and Jesus had an eventful relationship. I would argue that this event, this transfiguration of Jesus, which basically means that Jesus just appeared like God in all of his light and glory, and we'll get to that in a minute, but this event was probably one of the most impactful in the life of Peter. Now, why would I say that? Well, because he wrote about this event in one of his two letters to the churches. He didn't write about walking on water. He didn't write about feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. He wrote about being on the holy mountain with Jesus in 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to get to that in a minute. But have you ever been in a situation where you found yourself speaking and you realized that you had no idea what you were saying? I have, not when I'm preaching, though some of you may think that, uh, but it usually happens when I'm tired, half falling asleep. So my kids and my wife are most prone to hear uh, my incoherent interjections into their conversations while I'm in and out of consciousness on the couch at night. Usually it's late. I always hear about what I said later. <laughs> don't usually remember it. Um, or how about like when you are in the middle of speaking and someone just interrupts you but after you heard what they were saying, you realized that it was a good thing that they interrupted you because what you were saying was totally inappropriate, disconnected, or irrelevant to the conversation. I have been there too. Uh, I remember being in an important meeting at my last church. There were 15, 20 of us in this room. It was my second or third time in this particular meeting, and I really felt that I wanted to interject into this conversation. Only problem was they had moved on to another topic, and I was talking about something they'd finalized about 10 minutes earlier. My buddy interrupted me before I got too far, and I was annoyed at first until I realized that he was kindly saving me from heaps of embarrassment. What did I learn? Listen before you speak. <laughs> Crazy, it takes us 20, 30, 40, 50 years to figure that out, right? Peter had one of those moments in our story today. He started speaking, and God Almighty interrupted him. Now that would be something, right? Wow, Lord, it's so good to be here today. <laughs> Just say the word and I'll make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And right over the top, loud as thunder, intimidating as can be, clear as lightning, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Like, okay, tents? Like, not important, right? The fact that Peter was there out of his league, Moses and Elijah, not the focus of the conversation. Could Peter add anything to the situation, conversation, transfiguration? Absolutely not. Better just shut up, listen, and watch what God is going to do. Listen to him. And the three disciples, they found themselves in something so overwhelming and so powerful and so bright and glorious and important and otherworldly that they just fell down on the ground on their faces. They hid their faces from the brightness and the glory and the sound and the overwhelming presence of Jesus and the terrifying voice of God the Father. They were terrified. Why was that their response? Well, it was overwhelming. Was it the appropriate response? We'll work through this passage and find out. I want to give a little context to, uh, for this story that I think will be helpful for you. Jesus and his disciples were in Caesarea Philippi at this time. You can look in chapter 16, verse 13 of Matthew to find that. 
Caesarea Philippi was known to be an incredibly beautiful and historically important city. It was well known as a central hub for pagan worship for centuries. And during Jesus' time, there was a shrine to the Greek god of nature whose name was Pan. Pan was a half-man, half-goat guardian of natural life. Uh, His shrine or sacred spot was near a cave which flowed from a beautiful spring that was one of the sources of the Jordan River. And on the hillside, there was a gleaming white temple to another god, the emperor god, Caesar Augustus. And this temple was set against the background or backdrop of the snow-capped highest peak in Palestine called Mount Hermon, which rises 9,000 feet above, uh, above Israel. And I'm assuming most of you have watched Avengers, uh, or you have read some of the Greek mythology about Zeus and Apollo and all of that. Well, everyone, even in ancient times, knows that gods don't come down to earth in the form of a baby and grow up as a carpenter. Gods come down to earth through portals in the sky. They land on the earth in a cloud of dust, right? And they wield swords and huge skull-crushing hammers. And what they do what they want, when they want, to whomever they want. They conquer in order to rule, the, or they snap their finger and everything is chaos, right? Ancient Jews and Greeks thought this way too. Now, in ancient Jewish literature, Mount Hermon was believed to be the portal, so to speak, through which fallen angels had come down to earth and did a whole bunch of awful things. The book of Enoch is an ancient Jewish secular text. It's not scripture or part of the Bible, but it is a well-known ancient text by all the Jews. And in the book of Enoch, Mount Hermon was where the fallen angels made a pact that they would corrupt humanity by procreating with humans. The Bible count is in Genesis chapter 6. And God saw the corruption and he destroyed mankind, including the offspring of this detestable union, through the flood. Right? You've heard of the flood in Genesis. The place where all of this was believed by the Jews to have started was none other than the foot of Mount Hermon. And it's most likely where Jesus and his disciples were at. I love that. On Mount Hermon, outside of Caesarea Philippi, the place where popular culture believed the portals to the gods existed. Why is that significant? Well, what did the disciples call Jesus after he'd walked on water? They called him the Son of God. And now Peter, James, and John saw him as the Son of God on that holy mountain. Now turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1, if you want to follow along. 2 Peter chapter 1, where we will read some more very interesting details from the pen of Peter. Peter is writing to believers, encouraging them to persevere in their faith in the midst of difficulty and worldly deception, temptation, persecution. And he sets the context for his entire letter by mentioning a very impactful event on his life. The, and that event is none other than this transfiguration. Verse 16 of first, or, sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Think of you know, Greek mythology and things like that. He's saying, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. 
So Peter testifies that he saw Jesus in power and majesty, honor and glory. He testifies to the fact that he heard God's voice from heaven. He testifies to being on the holy mountain. He says, you will do well to pay attention. Sound familiar? What God said, my beloved son, listen to him, right? And the content for Peter's whole letter is influenced by his experience on top of that mountain. And why is that experience so impactful? Here's why. You see, the Jews and disciples were waiting for a Messiah that would come as a conqueror, one who would dash in pieces his enemies, just like, say, Thor, right? And Jesus, on that holy mountain, revealed that he could do that, that he was God and powerful enough to destroy his enemies with one blow from his mouth, right? However, that's not how God ordained the plan to go. Jesus defied all expectations for what the Messiah would be and do. He revealed this to the disciples on that mountain. Instead of a conquering Messiah who would come with swords and hammers and wipe out all of his enemies in an epic battle, Jesus said that the Messiah would be rejected and suffer and be murdered and be buried. And then he would rise again. This did not fit the disciples' expectation of the Messiah or of his salvation or of their almighty God. How does death save anybody? It's no wonder disciples were confused. They needed to be retaught by Jesus and have their eyes open to the character of God through the person of Jesus. And for this to happen, he needed to show them who he really was in full glory, full disclosure, and then from that perspective, redefine their idea of what the Messiah was going to be. And so Jesus takes them this high mountain and by themselves to witness what becomes a pivotal moment in the life of Peter, James, and John, and most importantly, in the life of Peter. And so Jesus and his three closest disciples ascend Mount Hermon, and it was there at the supposed portal where a host of fallen angels were believed to have corrupted mankind that Jesus revealed that he was God and declared that the only way to save the human race is not through the evil of conquering and conquest, but through the humble love displayed in sacrifice and suffering and death. That is how God would save the world. And that is why God said, listen to him. I think this is pretty cool stuff. Sounds a little bit like a fictional comic book story, but it isn't. It's true. And it's the gospel story that God invites us to enter into by faith. So let's look a little closer at this so you don't think I've watched too many Avenger movies. All right, let's go back to Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 to 5. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, if it is so good that we're here, if you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Rise and have no fear. Love the stories fully understand what's going on here, we need to reflect back to the Old Testament. You see, Matthew wrote his gospel for a primarily Jewish audience, so his readers would have picked up on some of the parallel language in this story, which references a particular passage in the Old Testament. Matthew's way of writing is supposed to remind us of, point us to, another person on a mountain at a particular time, and that was Moses on Mount Sinai. I want you to listen to Exodus chapter 24, verse 9 and 10. I'm going to just read it to you. 
Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up on the mountain and they saw the God of Israel. And there were under his feet, as it were, pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heavens for clearness. I want to stop there. Think about that. These guys saw the God of Israel and lived to tell about it. But so did Peter, James, and John. They saw the God of Israel as well in the person of Jesus, and they lived to tell about it. Now, interestingly enough, God had Moses take three men with him. Jesus took three men with him, Peter, James, and John. Back to Exodus chapter 24. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And just glance back at Matthew 17 again. It says, after six days, in other words, on the seventh day, Jesus went up the mountain just like Moses did. A cloud covered the mountain, verse 5. God spoke from the midst of the cloud, verse 5. Jesus' face shone like the sun. What does the sun look like? A devouring fire, right? Matthew is subtly connecting the life of Jesus and his three disciples to Moses and his three disciples on Mount Sinai. Why? Why is that important, right? Because the Bible is one story. And Jesus was joined by representatives of both the law, back in the Old Testament, and the prophets, Moses and Elijah. And both pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. Moses was there with Jesus on this mountain. Back in the Old Testament, God had passed by Moses on a mountain and revealed his glory to him. And God declared that Moses was a messianic forerunner. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, the Lord God said that he will raise up, Moses is talking, he says, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall what? Listen. Interesting. Elijah was also present with Jesus on this mountain, and God had passed by Elijah on a mountain and displayed his glory to him as well in the Old Testament. And then Elijah was also a messianic forerunner. Malachi chapter 4, Malachi prophesies, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. So both these guys were forerunners of the Messiah, both saw the glory of God on the mountain, both were given a command to speak to the people, and here they were pointing to Jesus on the holy mountain. The voice, verse 4 through 8. Actually, we're going to go in verse 5. He was still speaking, Peter, when behold, the bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So the voice comes out of the cloud and says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. It's a divine directive, a command from God. Instead of ten commandments on stone tablets with laws inscribed upon them, God speaks to us through Jesus. And he commands us to listen to whatever it is that Jesus tells us. We are to listen to him. I want you to think of this in light of what Jesus has said in the Scriptures already. We are to listen to him. Think of, think of this. The Messiah came to seek the lost. Think of Adam in prison, right? The Messiah came not to be served, but to serve. The Messiah must suffer 
and die. The Messiah would be buried. The Messiah would rise from the dead on the third day. Jesus said that those who follow this Messiah must take up their cross and be willing to suffer and die for his sake. Jesus said that anyone who would believe in him, though he die, yet would he live eternally. As countercultural as these teachings may seem, as weak and humble as they may sound, as disappointing and mundane as they may appear, these are the foundational characteristics of God's salvation plan and the way in which he ushers in his world-dominating kingdom through humility and service and suffering and death and resurrection, through faith and hope and love. God's salvation is not offered to us as a result of power and force and aggression and battle and swords and blood of his enemies. God's salvation is offered to us as a result of weakness and submission and humility and suffering and crucifixion and his own blood. The plan of God is paradigm-shifting. The salvation of God offered to us by faith is life-altering and motivation-changing and pride-crushing. And God's command is that we, like the disciples, should listen to Jesus. But you may say, I'm still a little confused. What does all this mean? Right? Don't worry. Peter was confused, too. He had a difficult time understanding what was going on at that moment as well. But the thing to know is this. God was intervening. Just like he had done on Mount Sinai in the Old Testament, he was coming to do something big. He foretold it. He prophesied it. Jesus proclaimed that the kingdom of God is at hand. Believe the good news. God had come, veiled in human form, to do what the gods do, to change the world. And just behind that thin veneer of human flesh and blood was Yahweh, God Almighty, who created and commanded the sea and the storms, the one who multiplied loaves and fishes because he created everything out of nothing, and the only one who could walk on water. And he was in human form saying, here I am, I'm going to suffer and die and rise again. Believe in me, follow me, suffer with me. And this is an unexpected invitation. It's good news, but it's also difficult news. Like what kind of invitation is that, right? The invitation of Jesus is going to change the world, and many of us are prone to walk away or prone to keep right on talking like Peter and come up with our own plans to set up tents and invite people to the mountaintop place full of lights and smoke and a deep voice and dazzling apparel. And God was saying, don't get caught up in all of this. It's great and glorious, but listen to him. His word is truth. His way is life. You see, God came as a human to live like us and die like us. And this is how he would save the world. No lights, no smoke, no loud music, no cameras, no streaming. Just the life, death, burial, and resurrection of a solitary man. And the thing that turns most people off to the good news that God came in the person of Jesus is that he died. Who wants to believe in a God who was born as a baby, worked as a carpenter, and died? Everyone wants to believe in a God who comes as an adult through a portal in the sky, swinging a sword, throwing a javelin, and killing his enemies. That's the type of God people expect. It seems foolish that God would have to die and then rise again. He could have given us eternal life without having to do that without having to die, without having to re- us to repent and, and believe in this gospel. He's God, right? He could have done another way. It's a scandal. It's humiliating. Precisely so. As we learn in 1 Corinthians 1, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
It's an ingenious plan. It's a miraculous way. For through this plan, through faith in the gospel story of a crucified Savior, God removes our human pride and wisdom, and He puts us squarely where we need to be, repenting of our propensity to try to be like God instead of living in faith and dependence upon the true God who came to be like us. God says, listen to Him. The Revelation, verse 9 and as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? <laughs> he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. And so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. The first thing that the disciples heard Jesus say after they'd heard the voice of God was, rise and have no fear. This had to have been a very intimidating and confusing moment, right? He had been shining and white and looking godlike, and now he was normal and looking quite normal, right? Quietly saying in a normal human voice, not a thunderous voice, rise and have no fear. And somehow they listened to him. They obediently got up and followed Jesus. And they put, on, put their fear behind them, began walking down the mountain with this very human-looking man that they've just been told to listen to. And the second thing the disciples heard Jesus say was he instructs them to tell, not to tell anyone about what they saw until the Son of Man rises from the dead. Jesus told them plain as day that he was going to rise from the dead. And they were supposed to listen to him. This should have excited them. <laughs> They may not have agreed with or liked the plan that he was going to die, but they should have been okay or at least interested in or excited about the fact that he was going to rise from the dead. However, this statement went right over their heads. They didn't even key in on Jesus' promise to rise from the dead. They didn't even acknowledge that he spoke of rising from the dead. Instead, their minds go back to seeing Elijah and Moses on the mountain. They asked about Elijah, not about the resurrection from the dead. I find that fascinating. Which is interesting in the light of the fact that they just saw Moses, right, who was dead. They just saw Elijah who was dead, and they just saw Jesus in a resurrected bodily appearance. So they totally missed the point. Resurrection after death is the point. <laughs> However, Jesus answered their question for them. This is the gracious kindness of Jesus on display yet again. He's oh so patient with us blockhead humans. And Jesus is like, you are right. Elijah does come and he restores all things. Long ago, the prophet Malachi had predicted, we read it, behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 17, we read about an angel who Come of the Lord who comes to Zechariah uh, and talks to him about the birth of his son, which is going to be John the Baptist. And the angel said, he, John the Baptist, will go before him, Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah. All right? And so the angel links John the Baptist with the prophecy in Malachi 4 regarding the return of Elijah. And John the Baptist and Elijah were one and the same, according to Jesus. And so Jesus confirms all of this. He says that Elijah's come. They did to him what they pleased. And what they did to John the Baptist was they killed him. They took off his head, served on a platter to the king of the land. Verse 13 confirms that the disciples understood what Jesus was saying, so they, they knew that he was talking about John the Baptist. And, and this is where the episode in the life of Peter ends, as recorded here. What I think is interesting is that, at least not recorded anyway, they didn't go back to the talk about a resurrection. And Jesus didn't go back to that conversation either. He just left it. I want to take you up to a, 
a verse that I skimmed over because it's where I want to wrap up this episode. It says in verse 8, the disciples lifted up their eyes and looked, and they saw no one but Jesus only. Can you imagine seeing that? Just put yourself in that moment. This incredible scene of Jesus lighting up in dazzling apparel, his face shining like the sun, two prophets of old appearing out of nowhere, clouds thick with glory, and envelope the whole scene, and a deep, booming, a calming, and assuring voice comes loudly from somewhere out of that cloud, listen to him. And then it's all gone, like a dream, like a vapor, and everything's back to normal. There stands Jesus, normal-looking, regular guy, soft-spoken, normal-build, standard-issue human with rugged hands and callous feet, carpenter. And this is the man that you've been told to listen to. Perhaps Peter thought about the first time he listened to Jesus, He threw out the net, hauled in two boatloads of fish, enough to fill and almost capsize both those boats. And as he's standing knee-deep in flopping fish, Jesus said to him, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And then there was a time out on the lake in the middle of the storm when Jesus walked on top of the water and he said to Peter, hey, don't be afraid, I am here. Come out here and walk with me. (laughs) And Peter obeyed the voice of Jesus and literally walked on top of the water. Someone this week told me, There were two people that walked on the water, Jesus and Peter. We forget about that. Peter walked on water. He did the impossible with Jesus. And here again, Jesus has just done something completely crazy, miraculous, something that completely defies the laws of nature. He transformed into his godlike appearance. And then he said, get up, don't be afraid. I, the Son of Man, will suffer and die, and then I will rise from the dead. And imagine that God had told you to listen to this man. Now, don't just imagine it, because here's the deal. God has called you to listen to Jesus, too. And this is nothing new. This is what God reveals to everyone through history, right? All through time, listen to Jesus. Believe in his death, burial, and resurrection, and obey him. Deuteronomy 18, 15, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like Moses from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you should listen. It's the first thing that Jesus always says to us. Don't be afraid. Be of courage. I'm with you. Just follow me. Apostle John, who was on that mountain, had a second encounter with the resurrected Jesus. I want you to listen to Revelation chapter 1. John describes his meeting Jesus a second time. He says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash on his chest. The hairs of his head were white like, white like wool, like snow. His eyes were a flaming fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. That's an impressive being. That's God. And when I saw him, fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his hand on me and said, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades and behold, I am coming soon. Again, the vision on the holy mountain, John sees Jesus and is overwhelmed with his powerful presence and appearance, and yet the words spoken by Jesus give hope, for Jesus speaks of his resurrection and his return. We are to listen to Jesus because his words give hope that he is coming again. But here's what struck me when I read the passage. 
The disciples were to tell no one about that vision until after he'd risen from the dead. And then they were to tell everybody. Peter did just that. We know it's the case because Mark recorded this incident from the mouth of Peter, and then Matthew and Luke used his account in each of their Gospels, and in each written record of the transfiguration of Jesus, read the words, listen to him. We are to listen to Jesus. Not slick politicians, not modern-day prophets, not top conservative talk show hosts, not horoscopes, not the philosophers and theorists and scientists were to listen to Jesus. And Peter knew better than anyone what it meant to listen to Jesus. Here is what this incredible scene on the top of the Holy Mount caused Peter to write to the first century church before his death. Here's, I'm going to read some words, last words of Peter, before he, soon afterwards, walked through the valley of death, like Jesus did, and was crucified like Jesus was. I want you to listen. Uh, Peter listened to Jesus, and he followed him, and all the way to crucifixion. And now I want you to listen to what Peter wanted them, wanted us, wanted his, the churches in the area to hear from Jesus. Back to 2 Peter chapter 3. You can follow along if you want. It's a little bit long, so just listen. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Peter says, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both letters, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Okay? So, reminder. Reminder of what? Verse 2. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior through your apostles. The commandment of the Lord is what we're to remember. And what is that commandment? Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days scoffing. Following their own sinful desires, they will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They're going to scoff, saying, Hey, when's Jesus coming back? He, he rose, right? And he said he's going to come. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, that means water, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. He's talking about the flood. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist, right now, are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. He continues, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And since all these things are thus to be dissolved, meaning done away with, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. He's reminding us of something, right? 
the commandment of the Lord. The commandment of the Lord is to love Jesus and listen to him until he comes again because he promised that he would come again. And why does Peter need to, re- to write this reminder to them? Because Jesus has not returned yet. He still hasn't. We're here. And in the waiting period, Christians have been tempted, always have been tempted, to forget what Jesus commanded and to turn their eyes off of him. Tempted to turn and fall back to our old ways and to pursue the things of this world. In verse 10 and 11 of of that passage I just read, all the things that will be dissolved up and burned up. In the end, everything will be gone. Money, home, lands, businesses, cities, farms, nations, all the works that have been done on the earth will be burned up. Verse 10, everything will be burned up. And since all of it will be burned up anyway, what we ought not to be preoccupied with any of it. Instead, what should we be preoccupied with? Listening to Jesus. He is all that matters. And as we listen to Jesus, what sort of people ought we to be? Peter says, holy, godly, eagerly waiting for the coming of the Lord, preparing for the new heaven and the new earth, being diligent then to be pure and at peace with one another. And this is what Jesus commands. This is what we're to listen to. Love him with all your hearts. Listen to him when he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Follow him in a life of humble service to God and to others because resurrection awaits us. And Jesus is coming again to make all things new. Therefore, be holy, be godly, be pure, be at peace as you eagerly await his coming. Listen to him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this experience, and I thank you for the insight that it gave to Peter and his words to us, for the perspective that it gives us that you are God and you're awesome, you're great, you're amazing, you are a God who eventually will come again through a portal in the sky and you will make all things right. The first time you came as a human and you died and you rose again so that we could believe, we could repent, and we could have eternal life with you, and you're going to come again, and you're going to make all things new. We look forward to that day, and as we wait for that day, help us not to be distracted by the things that distract so many of us. Help us to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who is going to destroy everything that exists, and the only thing left is going to be him and his glory. We can't wait for that day. We long for that day. Help us to long for that day so much so that our eyes are completely on him and help us to follow him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.